Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you have absolutely no idea where Acts is, that's okay. You've been in John. It's right next to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you get to Romans, you've gone too far. Or feel free to use the table of contents this morning. And this is still kind of, we're closing down our study on the Gospel of John. And you're thinking, yeah, Dave, we're in the book of Acts. How's that work? Okay, there is a method to the madness, I promise. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And I'll tell you why here in just a second. Now, as we finish up our series on the Gospel of John, which if you're counting, has been about 16 months that we have spent going verse by verse by verse through this Gospel account. You may be asking, what's next? Great question. I'm glad you asked. As we move into the summer months, we're actually going to do a nine-week kind of mini-summer series on the fruit of the Spirit based on Galatians 5, 22 to 23. And so we're going to look at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What do those mean? And how can we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us that fruit as we seek to reach out to the world around us and seek to love each other? And so we're going to do a little mini-summer series on the fruit of the Spirit. And, um, and I won't tell you what we're going to do after that, but I've already got a plan. So, but that's what we're going to do next over the course of the summer, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, and I hope you will be as well. And so as you're turning and opening up to Acts, back in the 1930s, a particular genre of American movies became very popular. and you kinda, They became ubiquitous, and they remained popular for many decades, and actually, they still are popular. And we even see their influence on other genres of American movies and cinema, even internationally. And you're thinking, what in the world is this particular genre of movies? Well, I'll give you a little hint. Typically, in the closing scene of the movie, a dialogue takes place between the hero of the story and those he helped. And they typically beg him to stay. Oh, please don't leave. Please stay. Please don't go away. But as you know, he's a loner. And a loner's got to be alone. And so the wide open plains beckon to him. He tips his hat. He turns his horse around. And he rides off into what? The sunset. Rides off into the sunset. If you haven't guessed it, I'm talking about the American Western movie. You know, you may think of your own particular one that you really love, but you think about that scene where you ride off into the sunset and the, you know, the, the hero of the story turns around. You see his silhouette against the sunset as he rides off into the plains. And that genre, has we still, it's, we still see its influence even today. Uh, you think about how, the, if you're familiar with the Star Wars movies, some of them end with Luke staring off into the distance as the two sons are there in the background. Uh, you think about Three Amigos, that cinematic masterpiece, uh, where the three amigos ride in and free the people of Santa Polco. Uh, you think about Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. There's several kind of ride-off into the sunset kind of things, Pirates of the Caribbean. The list goes on and on. It's become kind of a movie trope that you see happen a lot. I tried to find the movie where this visual ending was first used. I'm like, what was the first one that, that we saw it in? But apparently, uh, that information had also ridden off into the sunset as well. I couldn't find it. That was a joke, by the way. Um, reg regardless, when you think about this scene, it's become so ubiquitous in American cinema that it's almost become cliche. Now it's used in a Geico commercial, 
And the phrase right off into the sunset has become a way to talk about a happy ending in a variety of circumstances. It's kind of worked its way into our normal kind of everyday speech. Now for the past almost 16 months, we've been slowly but surely making our way through the Gospel of John. And we've looked at the life and the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because remember, the Gospel accounts say someone's here right now. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have a, they're a gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus talked about being sent by his Father multiple times, but he also talked about returning to him. A good example of this is John chapter 14, 25 to 28. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You see these promises over and over again where Jesus says, I'm going away, and I'm going to return to my Father. Last week, we saw the epilogue of John's gospel, which answered the question, what happened to Peter after his denial? Remember, John's gospel kind of comes around and fills in those holes there at the end, and we see the threefold restoration of Peter. After his threefold denial, he is, he is reinstated and restored three times, and then given this call, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my flock as I go away. Now this week, we're going to see what happened to Jesus after his resurrection. In this time between the resurrection and the ascension. And remember, John's gospel began with an explanation of Jesus leaving heaven to dwell among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so that's how John's gospel started. And I want us to complete the story arc by seeing Jesus return to his father. So that's why we're going to Acts. Jesus came down, dwelt among us. Now we see him returning to his Father, and that story arc is completed as we see Jesus' work on earth finishing. So as we turn our attention to the book of Acts, which is the second book that was written by Luke, the first book is the gospel account that bears his name. Luke was a physician. He was a companion of Paul. He left behind very detailed accounts probably in barely legible handwriting. That was a joke. Of the, so what you see, Luke was a physician, and it, what he did was he left behind very detailed accounts of the life of ministry, the life of Jesus. We love to go to Luke's account, especially during Christmas time, because you get, you get all that great detail that Luke wrote down. And, and what he did was this, this uh, account that Luke left, he not only left in a, a detailed account of the ministry of Jesus in his gospel account, he also left behind a very detailed record of the formation of the early church in the first century as, after Jesus ascended and the disciples were sent out. And one of those unique details that Luke wrote down was the fact that Jesus remained on earth for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Luke's the only one that tells us that. And as we read this passage this morning, we're seeing Jesus' parting words to his disciples before he returned to his Father. And as you'll see, the disciples are kind of almost left staring off into the sunset as Jesus leaves them. But before leaving them, Jesus gave them a mission and a promise to help them with that mission. That's going to be our two points. And I want to see if you can spot them 
as we read this morning. He gave them a mission and he gave them a promise. So let's look at Acts chapter 1 with that in mind. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And as we consider your return to the Father, Lord, may we also with great expectation look to your return. And so, Father, be with us as we open your word and as we uh, sit under it. Father, teach us, O Lord. Holy Spirit, be at work. Help us to receive these words by faith. Give us all that we need. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a little bit of background. Don't worry, this is all baked into the time. Luke's gospel, you notice in verse 1, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, so now this is his second book, it ends with a brief description of the ascension itself. Luke's gospel account kind of ends with a quick little version of the, of the ascension, but we get more details here in his second book. And notice Luke addresses this book to someone named Theophilus, and that word means lover of God. And there's been some debate about whether this was an actual person or whether this is kind of like a, um, a symbolic name for any future Christian reader, similar to like you might hear, you might read in a book or like in an opinion article or in a newspaper, Dear Reader. It might be in that kind of vein. There's some debate over whether Theophilus was a real person or whether it's a, hey, future reader. Either way, it doesn't really matter. And we find out that it occurred in Bethany on the Mount of Olives is where this was. And Luke 24.50 tells us that. And actually verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 tells us that as well. It's a very significant location in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, the Mount of Olives is where David prayed, where he was trying to escape Absalom. Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesied from there. In the New Testament, we see Jesus going there three separate times in the lead up to his death. Verse 2, we find out that Jesus gave some commands to his disciples and the Holy Spirit helped them understand his teaching. And again, Luke provides helpful details. In Luke's gospel account, uh, chapter 24, verses 45 to 49, here's what he said. He said, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. 
but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, you see the work of the Spirit as it as it as the Spirit opens the disciples' minds and the apostles' minds to understand what Jesus was talking about. But again, you see them missing it over and over again. In verse 3, we're told that the disciples' faith was strengthened by Jesus appearing to them over the course of those 40 days. And he give, in giving them what is translated as proofs, in the Greek, the word there is tekmerion. And, and when you look up the official definition of this, and kind of like I have this big, you know, massive set of dictionaries, you look it up, and the, it's a really interesting definition. It says, indubitable evidence. Thought that was kind of an interesting way to describe that. Indubitable evidence. Jesus gave them this, these proofs. And he spoke to them, it says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And as we have seen throughout John's gospel account and other gospel accounts, you, you realize that this is always misunderstood, usually misunderstood. In John 18, 36, when Jesus was in front of Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Remember, Pilate is questioning him, and you say that you're a king. And he says, Well, my kingdom, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And people have constantly been wrestling to try to understand that. And John Polhill, in his commentary, said, The kingdom of God means not an earthly, political, or military kingdom, but the present spiritual, spiritually directed reign of God gradually transforming individual lives and entire cultures through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this kingdom of God was not to be one that was going to be marked by like a physical throne or a physical place. It is now shifted into the hearts and minds of people. And Jesus said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's already broken through. We understand the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully realized in its fullness. And that's Revelation 21-22. Look at verse 4. In addition to giving them indubitable evidence, he promised them something else. A promise of the Father. Verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a new and greater empowering. And this one is called the helper or the comforter. The Greek word here is parakletos. And we talked about this this morning in Sunday school when we looked at the doctrine or the thinking of the paraclete. And in the Latin, you have the word comfort is where you get cum forte in the Latin, which is with strength. This one who's going to come and be a comforter, who's going to strengthen you. We talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a pat on the back, comforting, here's some warm chicken soup. It is a coming with strength to equip, to kind of strengthen you and to help you in the moments of need. And so Jesus promised to send this baptism himself so that his disciples would be strengthened and equipped for the task, of hand, uh, task at hand. And this work, as we think about in the here and now, this work is ongoing. So just as the Holy Spirit helped and equipped the disciples and apostles, so you too, fellow believers in Christ, are being equipped and strengthened by the work of the Holy Spirit for the task at hand. We see in verse 6, as usual, the disciples missed the spiritual implications of the kingdom. And they asked Jesus when he would bring about a political change. Remember, they're still under Roman occupation at the time. And so the disciples, again, they just kind of, this idea of the kingdom of God just kind of flies over their head. And they say, when are you going to restore, when are you going to kick the Romans out, basically, and restore political power here? And Jesus reminds them, it's that it is a kingdom, the kingdom of God is in the hearts and minds of people. It's not about a political change. Look at what, how Jesus responds in verse 7. It's really interesting here. 
Jesus said, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. And when you think about what He says here, Jesus, this is really, really helpful. Because these words are helpful for us today. Why? Because many Christians spend way too much time trying to pinpoint where we are on the timeline of redemption. And they're looking under every spiritual rock, every little nook and cranny, waiting and trying to find where are we between Christ's ascension and His return. Where are we on that timeline? And they spend a ton of time doing this. Entire libraries have been written by people trying to pinpoint where we are. Think about Harold Camping predicting the rapture precisely on May 21st, 2011. As you can tell, that prediction was not true. And that was actually his fifth time, I think, revising his initial uh, time when it was going to come back. You think about back in April of 2014 when John Hagee prophesied or predicted these blood moons and Jesus was going to return during the blood moon time. Think about it. You can probably think of your own examples where people have tried to pinpoint exactly when Jesus' return was going to happen, and they built their whole kind of lives around that. I mean, you had people that went and sold their houses and sold all their stuff and, uh, in, in preparation for these days. Verse 7 is really helpful to us. Why? Because Jesus is basically telling us to stay in our lane and not to speculate on things that we cannot definitely know. We have to remember Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things are the Lord's. I'm okay with that. I'm okay leaving it in the hands of the Lord because I know that I would probably be an absolute wreck or a wretch if I knew the exact day and time that he was coming. Jesus said, I'll come like a thief in the night. We don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Is, is Jesus coming back? Yes, absolutely. And to that we say, please come. May it be today, Lord. Is he coming back? Yes. When is he coming back? I have absolutely no idea. And neither does any human being on earth. No one knows. I don't. You don't. No one knows. Here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, these were Jesus' final earthly words. It's been more than 2,000 years, and Jesus has not, during that time, planted his feet on terra firma and audibly addressed his followers. Perhaps that silence is intended to prevent anything from obscuring Jesus' last words so that they will continue to reverberate in the church's ears. So we think about what's going on here, and we ask a couple of big questions. What do we do in the meantime? So what do we do as believers do in the meantime? What can we learn from Christ's closing words to his disciples before he returned to his Father, and why should we care? Those are the big questions we're going to ask this morning. Let's look at the first thing we're going to look at. Again, it's all baked into the time. Point one, the mission of Christ's disciples. We're going to see the mission of Christ's disciples in point one. Point two, the promise to Christ's disciples in our second point. So let's see the mission of Christ's disciples. Look at verse 8 again. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Basically, Jesus is calling his disciples to be witnesses wherever they go. And actually, this one verse, if you were to go and look at the book of Acts, it actually encapsulates the entire book of Acts in one verse. 
Because what you see is the, as the church spread, it started in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, spread out to Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12, and, all, and reached to the end of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. So think county, state, nation, world, kind of expanding areas of influence. Think about a, a rock getting thrown into the middle of the pond. What happens? The ripples spread out, do they not? That's what we're looking at. You will be my witnesses starting here, but it will ripple out and move out, not just in a region, but throughout time. And we're grateful for that. This is the mandate that Christ gave his disciples, and it's still our call today, which is to be witnesses. Theologically, what we're talking about here is the church militant. And that doesn't mean that we take up rifles and we go storm cities, okay? But theologically, we're talking about the church militant. And it's made up of believers here on earth. And we as believers are called to fight the good fight of faith in the midst of trials and temptations and to be faithful. We're called to be faithful, to trust Christ, and to tell others about Christ until we either die or Christ returns in glory. We are the church militant in the here and now. It's what the entire hymn for all the saints is about. I love that old hymn, For All the Saints. It's actually my, my wife's favorite hymn. And one of, the, one of the verses of For All the Saints says, O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's what the, For All the Saints says. So this idea of a church that is to be on mission, a church that is to have its boots on, that is to fight the good fight of faith all the way, until the end. And so this is our call, to be on mission as the church militant until we become the church triumphant. So you have the church militant and you have the church triumphant, which is believers who have run their course and gone on to be with the Lord. And so what is our call? To carry on with our boots on, to fight the good fight of faith, to lean into Christ, to be faithful to Him, trusting in His work on our behalf with the hope of glory right there in front of us, almost like we're looking off into the sunset. It's a beautiful picture when you think about it. And all those fellow saints who have gone ahead of us, waiting for us there. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture when you think about it. Again, Kent Hughes was helpful. Here's what he said. Don't miss this. He said, To be a witness for Christ is to bring a message that is a marvel of simplicity. Jesus Christ is God come in flesh. He died to pay for our sins. He was resurrected, and now he is exalted in heaven. And he calls us to believe in him and so receive forgiveness of sins. And this is good news. Catch this. There is nothing to join, no system to climb, just a person to receive, and in him eternal life. Though this witness is simple, it requires costly commitment from its carriers. It radically touches our inner complexities, who we are deep inside, end quote. Again, this is not some like pyramid, pyramid scheme for you to work. This is not some sort of math equation for you to figure out. The gospel is amazingly simple in its message. It is a person to receive. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. And we cling tightly to that. That he came and he dwelt among us. That he fulfilled the law's demands in our stead. That he died the death that we deserved. Went in, was literally buried in an actual tomb that other people saw. Was resurrected from that tomb and walked out of that tomb. And you think, yeah, right. 
it was witnessed by many and many and many and written down. It, it's, its historicity is, is really not in question. You think about this. And that Christ came and he, and he fulfilled the law's demands and he rose again and we walk in the midst of that. It's brutally simple. Like I said, I have one fastball that I throw on a Sunday morning. It's the same fastball every, every week. I basically preach the same thing every week. Look to Christ, trust in Christ, it's all about Christ. But yet, as we think about, yes, it's all about Christ, you also see here there's a call that we live out in the midst of that. And the message is profoundly simple, but it is costly. That word witness there, in the Greek, is the word that we get martyr from. It's martyr. If we're going to be witnesses in the world, it means that we need to roll our sleeves up and help. Think about this, we'll have plenty of time to rest in heaven's perfection. But in the meantime, while we are here on earth as the church militant, we're called to be on mission, both with our lives and our words. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But don't forget the strength of that message, the hope of the gospel in Christ. And don't forget the strength of that promise that you'll have the Holy Spirit's help when you are fearful. Here's the thing. There is not a heavenly quota for you to fulfill. That's the Lord's work. There is not a heavenly quota for you to fulfill. But there is a heavenly call for us all to be faithful to. There's not a quota to fill, but there's a call for us to be faithful to. And so the question is this. How are you being a witness for Christ? In your job, in your family, in your school, in your friend group, in your neighborhood... How are you being a witness for Christ? It doesn't always mean holding up signs and street preaching, but how are you bringing the message of the gospel to bear in those various spheres of influence that you have? How's that? How are you thinking about that? How are you asking the Lord to expand that? I'll give you a hint. You can't do this if you only talk with other Christians all the time. Are you asking the Lord to bring other people into your life who do not know the Lord? Are you going? Are you only just hanging out in church? Or are you going and trying to be salt and light in the world around you? Remember, we, can, we share our faith because Jesus already loves us, not as the way that we earn his love. That's a big deal. That's a gospel motivation. The reason why we go and we share the gospel with others is because he already loves us. We love because he first loved us. That is the statement of fact, the thing that we rest in. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we rest in that unshakable truth. As we go therefore and bring the, the message of grace and mercy to those around us as we lay before them the gospel message. And the reach of that mission is international, and the call is universal. We all fit in somewhere, and I think that's beautiful. There's no little people in God's economy. We all matter. We all have a part to play. But there's no loopholes. We're all involved. We all have something to do. Again, Kent Hughes said this, Followers of Christ yearn for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And community. There can be no burden for dis distant, unreached peoples without a burden for unreached neighbors. Christian believers see that it is their duty to cross over ethnic divisions. Christ demands a world heart. 
a heart that prays for those at home just as much as those for being touched by overseas missionaries. Jesus' final words to his church demand expansive hearts. Isn't that good? You know that, yes, we have a desire to see the nations reach for the gospel. Of course we do. We already heard some great reports this morning specifically on that. But yet we also want to see the gospel go forward in our school, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, even in our own backyards. And my hope is that we would not be so distantly minded that we forget the local work that's right here under our noses. There's plenty of work to do here. There's lots of people in our county that don't know the Lord. There's lots of people that think they know the Lord, and they don't. And our call is to go and to be salt and light in the world around us. Don't miss the implications of what's right here in our own backyard. There's incredible work to do here. And may the Lord use us in a mighty way. But let's face it. The main reason we don't evangelize is that it might make us feel uncomfortable. It might make us look silly. Or it might make a relationship awkward. (laughs) Trust me. I know from experience. In those moments, we remember that we have a simple but powerful message to share. You notice you've got a very simple fastball. Fastball is a pretty simple pitch to throw. We've got a very simple message in a very simple pitch to throw, and we throw it. But the thing that we do is we also trust in the work of the Holy Spirit because we have a strong and powerful Holy Spirit that equips us, strengthens us, and encourages us as we ask the Lord to bring our non-Christian friends into the family of God so that we can be with them forever. You ever thought about that? As you pray for others to come into the kingdom, we're praying, Lord, help them to be my brother or sister so that we can spend eternity together in heaven's perfection. Lord, add to your family. Lord, take these rebels and make them your children, just as you did the same with me. Lord, may your kingdom grow and your kingdom advance, and may we long for that time when we can be together with the Lord. You think about the saints who have gone before you, those whom you love, those whom you miss. We had a death in the kind of our larger church family this, just a couple of days ago. And you think about, we think about the passing of Dick O'Farrell, and he's now in heaven's perfection with the Lord. And we go, man, praise God, and I can't wait to see him again. That's the hope as we pray, Lord, please expand your kingdom out. Remind me of your promises. Remind me of your grace. Remind me of the hope of heaven. Remind me of this family of God that you have brought a bunch of rebels and enemies and people with dead stony hearts and you've changed them and brought us in and you've kept us forever. May that only grow. Do you see the motivation there? It's a motivation of, Lord, bring those in. And we typically forget the closing sentence of the Great Commission. Again, we talked about this in Sunday school. We hear, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And we think, and we freeze up. How could I possibly do this? But we forget the last little bit, don't we? Because Jesus gave us a great promise. He said, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not doing this alone. You're not doing this by yourself. This is a great promise when it was originally given to Christ's disciples, and it remains a steadfast promise for us today. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But now let's look at our second point very quickly. Christ pro- the promise to Christ's disciples. 
Verse 8, again, Christ promised to send the Holy Spirit after he returned to his Father. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that happening with, the, with Pentecost. And Luke tells us all about what happened there in chapter 2. And you think about a restored and renewed Peter. Remember last week, we saw the end of John's Gospel where he comes and, and expecting Jesus probably to uh, you know, just drop the hammer on him. I mean, he had publicly denied Jesus three times. And what does Jesus do? He restores Peter fully, and he says, feed my sheep. Lord, do you love me? Feed my lambs. He restores Peter. What did a restored and renewed Peter preach? Acts chapter 2, 29 to 33. Here's what Peter said. That one who came in in shame, but then left restored, what did he preach? Acts chapter 2, 29 to 33. Here's what Peter said. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What did Peter say? We've seen him. We have seen the Lord. This one who came and, was, and rose again from the dead. We have seen him. We are witnesses of him. Look to him. Luke tells us that about 3,000 souls were added that day. It's amazing when you think about it. And the Holy Spirit is still at work, and that number has grown exponentially since the first century as the ripples of the gospel has spread out all over the world. Look around you. Look around at what God is doing and be encouraged. God is at work. He's always at work. I was so quick to forget this. I still am quick to forget this, that God is at work. Even when this church was empty and I was preaching to a screen, I still had to remember, God is at work. When I go to sleep at night, I have to remember, God is at work in the hearts and minds of people all over the globe. God is at work while I am fast asleep. You are seeing the ripple effects of God's work. You sitting here and having other people in this room is proof positive of the Holy Spirit's work. Because you and 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 me, we're all rebels with dead stony hearts that the Lord brought back to life and brought us from darkness into life. Look around and see the work of God. God's at work. He's always at work. And it's easy to think that you're alone in this work. Oh, but you're not. It's easy to think that it's all up to you. It's not. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. Aren't you glad that it is not up to you to save someone? That it is the Holy Spirit's work and that he is powerful enough to do it. I'm grateful for that. It's easy to come up with excuses as to why we shouldn't. I get it. I understand. But the call for this passage this morning is for us to trust Christ, trust the power of that fastball, and to step out in faith and to trust the Lord. Look at verse 9. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes as they were given this charge and this promise by a man who came back from the dead. Then put yourself in their shoes and imagine watching Jesus in bodily form float up into heaven on a cloud and disappear from sight. Returning to his father, and as we talked about before, returning with the scars of the cross on him. Ascending to heaven 
with those scars on him in his glorified body as an eternal sign of his completed work of redemption. Remember, this is a public miracle, just like the resurrection. Again, Kent Hughes said this, That cloud may have been the Shekinah glory, a visible representation of the pleasure and presence of God. This was the same symbol that Moses had encountered on Sinai when God covered him with his hands so that Moses only saw the afterglow. It was the same cloud that traveled before Israel by day, a pillar of fire by night. It was the cloud that lay over the tabernacle and filled the temple. It was the cloud that Ezekiel saw depart over the east gate. It was the same presence that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone forth like the sun, as we see in Matthew 17. Think about this picture. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples as they see Jesus ascend back to the Father, and that ark is completed. Verse 10, the disciples are kind of left standing there on the Mount of Olives, staring up into heaven, wondering what in the world just happened. And then they hear a voice. Verse 11, look at what they hear in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The heavenly beings that are there basically ask, what are y'all still doing here? What a wonderful promise that they gave to the disciples that Jesus will return. And this has been the hope of the church since it was originally given, an unshakable unchangeable hope in the return of Christ, backed up with many, many proofs. Think about the Bible that you hold in your hand, these eyewitness testimonies of this Christ who came, these future promises that we have, these lives that have been changed, this indubitable proof that all of this that you rest your faith and trust in, every bit of it's true, every bit of it. Is this your hope today? Do you find yourself leaning into Christ's return? When you hear these words, I'm going to come back in the same way I went. You think, oh, Lord, please, may it be today. As we began our study of John 16 months ago by hearing these words in John chapter 1 in the prologue, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The future hope of all believers is that we will see His glory again when He returns in flesh as the triumphant King of glory. So what do we lean into this morning? What's our closing kind of salvo on the Gospel of John? Hear the words of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what? Why should we care? So what? Is he almost done? Yes. Why should we care? When you think about what's going on here, we are the church militant. If you are here and you trust Christ by faith, he has made you his own. We are a part of the church militant. And as we await his return, let us encourage each other with these words. And let us also be about the work that the Lord has called us to do. D.T. Niles famously said, Christianity is just one beggar telling the other beggars where he found the bread. That's it. May we be about the work of taking this gospel message, costly as it may be. 
May we be about the work that God has called us to do until He returns in glory or He calls us home, which is to go and be witnesses of Him in all avenues of our life. Again, the Westminster Confession starts in shorter catechism with a very simple question. What's the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's the chief end of man? And how does it answer that? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? This is the beautiful way. Lots of ways. Lots of ways that we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we are called to go and to take this message of grace into the world. We're called to be witnesses to the risen Jesus Christ in all areas of our life. But we're not left to do that in our own strength. We're given the work of the Holy Spirit, this powerful member of the triune Godhead who accompanies the powerful truth of the message, which is so simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, that simple. The Lord uses all of that to change people's hearts. And the very reason you are here right now is because of that powerful message, that powerful Holy Spirit, probably being told to you by a very weak person, and the Lord used it. And aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that God is at work right now? Aren't you grateful that He will continue to be at work until the day He comes forth? And our prayer is simply this, come Lord Jesus and help us to be faithful in the meantime and help us to continue to press on and fight the good fight of faith. That's it. That's the call. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this equipping work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this reminder yet again that it's not left up to us to do it. There is no quota for us to fulfill. But there is a call that we are called to be faithful to. And Lord, we are thankful that you have not called us to go anywhere where you yourself have not gone first. And so we do pray for our own witness here in DeKalb County, in the state of Alabama, in our country, in our region, in our nation, and even around the world. And we're grateful, O oh Lord, that you are always at work. That your Holy Spirit has gone out with great power. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to you. But help us to do so with the right motivation. We don't go and share the gospel with others so that you will love us. That if we do it just the right way, or if we do it enough, then somehow we earn our way into heaven. Lord, the reason why we go and we share the good news of the gospel is because you loved us first. And you sent your Son to die in our place. And so, Father, may those great truths ring in our ears as we go and we tell our neighbors the best news that they could ever hear. This is what makes the gospel good news. That sinful, broken enemies of God can be made right with God through the work of the Holy Spirit and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so, Father, even as we sit here and we consider where we stand before you, O oh Lord, do we rest in these promises? Is this our hope this morning? And, Father, if it is, may you put into us just a deeper longing for heaven. But, Lord, in the meantime, strengthen us, encourage us, O oh Lord, and help us to be faithful to continue to just throw that fastball and trust your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.